And tonight we want to take a look at the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. You know, there is nothing in the world quite like a promise. When I make a promise, I reach into your unpredictable future and I make at least one thing in your life predictable. It's a known in the unknown. It's an island of sureness in a sea of uncertainty. And this is a truly wonderful gift, an incredible treasure. Think of a promise as an investment in a person's future. And the fact that God has made specific promises to His people is one of the wonders of His grace. We call His special promises covenants. You know, God wants fellowship with people. Even after we've rebelled against Him, He's still prone to make promises and reestablish terms for relationship. Amazingly, God interjects His promises when we least deserve them. Survey history and you discover that on the heels of humanity's greatest tragedies, greatest failures, God has countered with a covenant. When the first man lost paradise, after a perverted world was cleansed with a flood, when God broke up the rebellion at the Tower of Babel, even when God's own people Israel failed to enter the promised land, every time it seemed that we were determined to snuff out the light on our own future, God stepped in and relit a candle. He struck a new deal. He instituted a new, another covenant to revive our hopes of a better life. See, the Bible is the story of how God keeps reaching into a future that we keep trying to make bleak. He created us by breathing into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And despite our sin against him, God is recreating in us something better than before by breathing his promises into our future. The Bible is all about the covenant promises that God has made to man. We normally divide the Bible into two sections, Old Testament and New Testament. Did you know the word testament is an old English term for covenant? It's actually the old covenant and the new covenant. Think of a last will and testament. My testament is an agreement between me and my heirs. No one can ignore my will and just do as they please. A testament sets out my terms and conditions for the disbursement of my wealth. And this is what God has done with His covenants. God desires to disperse His grace. And His covenants lay out the terms, His terms, of doing so. Your Bible's table of contents is divided into two covenants. But God has actually instituted seven different covenants with mankind. We've discussed the Edenic, the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, and the Mosaic covenants, the last of the covenants is the deal that Jesus strikes with mankind on the cross. That's the new covenant. But the bridge between Moses and Jesus is the Davidic covenant, which is this week's topic in our Shortcut College series. Now remember the last two covenants that we've discussed. After mankind's revolt at the Tower of Babel, 
God chose one man named Abraham. His plan of redemption became a family business. Call it Abraham and sons. God promised to Abraham and his heirs a parcel of real estate. That he would be a great nation and that a descendant would come through Abraham of which the world would be blessed. Here's the Abrahamic covenant in a nutshell. The land of Canaan, the nation or Israel, and the blessing which ultimately will be Jesus. Or we could say it, sod, seed, salvation. And like any last will and testament, God clarified who would inherit this vital covenant. Rather than his surrogate son, Ishmael, the covenant passed from Abraham to his natural-born son, Isaac, then on to Isaac's son, Jacob, or Israel, and then to Israel's 12 sons. God brought salvation into the world through the 12 tribes of Israel. This is why God protected the children of Israel and put a hedge about them as they developed. Either their annihilation or their assimilation would have thwarted God's plan for them. God's strategy was for Abraham's family to stand out among the nations, to walk in his ways, and to reflect his glory. And so as soon as he delivered them from Egypt, he brought them to his holy mountain, to Mount Sinai, to establish a covenant with them through Moses. It too consisted of three promises. They were given the law. They were given a system of sacrifices And they were given a list of blessings and curses. And here's how it worked. An obedient Israel would overflow with God's blessing. A disobedient nation would suffer from his curses. But either way, God would be glorified. By blessing or by cursing, the world would recognize that the Almighty God was dictating Israel's destiny. And yet, sadly, over Israel's history, the people experienced far more cursing than they did blessing. You see, they refused to adhere to God's law. And they weren't always faithful to atone for their sin or cover their sin with His sacrifices. At times, they followed after other gods. Rather than trust in Yahweh, they sought for a king like the neighboring nations around them. They wanted to follow a human leader that they could see. Their first king, Saul, he looked apart for sure. He looked apart, but he lacked the heart. Saul was rejected by God. And God chose a king, a man after his own heart, a shepherd boy named David. What a man this David became. David was a flawed man for sure. But he was a man full of faith. He was a warrior and a worshiper. And into both arenas, he brought an intense passion for God. During the reigns of David and his son Solomon, Israel experienced a golden age of God's blessing. For the first time, and the last time I might add, Israel expanded to fill most of the borders that God had promised. One day, King David was strolling along the portico of his palace. He was surveying the Jerusalem skyline, his capital. But he noted an inconsistency. The king conducted affairs of state in a palatial mansion, while the worship of God was carried out in a rustic tent. 
It just wasn't right. See, David understood that God overflows the heavens. But his home on earth is his temple. And at the time, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting with God, wasn't consistent with God's glory. The tabernacle was just just a tent. It consisted of animal pelts laid over bronze poles. The gods of the other nations had magnificent temples dedicated in their honor. Why not the God of Israel? Why didn't he have a temple? When foreign ambassadors visited Jerusalem, the holy city of God, they saw the king in this amazing palace, but God was in a tent. It was an insult to the Almighty. At least that's how David took it. And David wanted to build God a temple. But when he asked for permission, David was refused. God was tougher on him than the Gwinnett County Planning Commission. He couldn't get a permit. David was the king, yet God denied him a building permit. David went on to purchase the property for the temple. He quarried the stone, he cut the cedar, he gathered the gold, he even recruited the artisans who would build it. God let David make all the logistical preparations, but it would be up to his son Solomon to build for God a temple. And yet in response to David's noble desire to build God a house, God did bless David with a covenant. He promised to build David a house. Not a literal house, but a political house. A dynasty of David's descendants would rule over God's people. Saul's son, remember, tried to succeed his father, but he failed. And yet, beginning with the nation's second king, King David, the kingdom of Israel became a patriarchal monarchy. A son of David will sit on his father's throne forever. When we speak of today's British monarchy, we call it the House of Windsor. Well, from Solomon onward, Israel was to be ruled over by the House of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God delivers to Nathan the prophet a message for King David. God's promise begins in verse 10. Read with me. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. God reaffirmed to David the land promise that he had made to the family of Abraham. You know, numerous times throughout history, Israel had been uprooted, from their location on the Fertile Crescent. Yet ultimately, God will plant Israel in this land that He gave to Abraham, and He would give her peace from all her enemies. And David's son would rule over that land. Reminds me of a cartoon, an American Indian. He's in a powwow with a modern Israeli official. The Indian chief confesses. He says, quite frankly, in our case, the land for peace deal didn't work out so well. And sadly, over and over throughout American history, Native Americans swapped their land for the promise of peace, and they got neither. Israel needs to learn swapping land for peace doesn't work. 
God promised Abraham and sons both land and peace. The land of Canaan is not for Israel to negotiate or to vacate. The Bible teaches that all the earth belongs to God and he allocates parcels to whomever he pleases. God is sovereign over the nations. Thus the land once called Canaan, later known as Judea and Samaria, today called Israel, is God's gift to David. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan continues with this amazing promise. Not only did God give to David the land in which Israel would to dwell, God wanted to build, David wanted to build God a house. But instead, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house, Nathan says. When your days are fulfilled and your rest, you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A seed from David's own body, that is, a flesh and blood heir, a natural born son will reign over Israel and build God a temple. And this son of David will have a special relationship with God. Verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men. And with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Remember, God stripped the kingdom from Saul and gave it to another. But not so with David's heir. God will chasten him when needed, but he won't be rejected. The immediate fulfillment of this promise was David's son Solomon. When David died, Solomon assumed the throne of Israel. And he did build God a glorious temple. God made Israel great among all the nations. Solomon was out there passing out mega hats. <laughs> People laughing all over. But it didn't take long before the house of David needed the correction that God also promised in the covenant. For toward the end of his life, Solomon strayed from the will of God. He multiplied foreign wives. 700 wives were told and 300 concubines. How does the wisest man on earth end up with a thousand mother-in-laws? I'll never know. But his pagan wives led the king and Israel into idolatry. And according to the covenant that God made with David, God disciplined David's house. In fact, the next 500 years of history saw a series of divine spankings on the house of David. When the kings of Israel and Judah strayed from God's law, God would raise up foreign armies to oppress his people. When those kings obeyed, he would bless them with peace and prosperity. It was the blessings and curses in action. Well, God promised David that his sons would be disciplined but never deserted. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, the deal gets sealed. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. What a colossal promise. 
This covenant transcends David and the 400-year monarchy that followed. For God looked down the halls of history and He made a promise to David that He would never be without an heir to sit on His throne. Apparently, God's promise to Solomon, like so many biblical prophecies, had a dual fulfillment. God said of David's heir, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now immediately, Solomon did build a house for God's name, this glorious temple. But Solomon's throne wasn't forever. In 586 B.C., the Davidic dynasty came to a halt. The Babylonian army sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They took David's heir, the great-great-great-great-great-grandson of of Solomon, Zedekiah at the time. They took him into exile. Zedekiah died a prisoner in Babel. And when this happened, the rabbis of Israel reevaluated the covenant that God had made with David. They now saw in the covenant a future fulfillment. That of the lineage of David, a still future king would arise who will reign forever. They realized that like so many of the Old Testament prophecies, the Davidic covenant was a dual prophecy. Its immediate partial fulfillment was Solomon and his successors, but the covenant's quintessential, ultimate realization would be a future and eternal king. Whenever a new king took the throne in Israel, he was anointed with olive oil. A ram's horn brimming with olive oil was poured over his head. The oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit, which the king needed to govern wisely. All Hebrew kings were called the anointed one. But in light of the Davidic covenant, this term took on a special meaning. For the Hebrew word Messiah... And its Greek translation, Christ, both mean anointed one. These terms became titles for the eternal son of David who would sit on his father's forever throne. This was the answer to the Davidic covenant. And the implications are astonishing, even to today. Since Messiah... God's ultimate eternal king is David's heir and sits on David's throne. And since David's throne is the throne of Israel, that means that Israel will one day rule the world. Can you imagine? This tiny little country, the country of Israel, is destined to govern the entire world. And yet this is just like God. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise in the weak things of the world, to confuse the mighty. You know, if God was concerned with earthly criteria, Messiah would be a United States president, or the leader of the EU, or as the secretary general of the United Nations. But God picks an often besieged nation with a slim population for world domination. How's that? Amazingly, Messiah will sit on David's throne and rule the world from Israel. And God recognizes the irony of his choices. That's why he went to such great effort to track his promise through all the various covenants that we've studied. As far back as the Garden of Eden, God promised a seed who would be our Savior, 
Genesis 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Eve would bear a son who would destroy the authority of Satan. But Eve was the mother of all living. She sired many sons. So God narrowed down the lineage of the Savior to a man named Abraham. In Genesis 22, verse 18, God promised him a seed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And from Abraham, God continued to track the seed. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And to further designate the identity of the seed, God said of the natural-born son Isaac in Genesis 15, verse 4, But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Isaac then had two sons, Esau and Jacob. A colossal case of sibling rivalry erupted over the Abrahamic covenant. Twice Jacob swindled the birthright from Esau. And yet in the end, his father Isaac let the designation stand. Jacob would carry on as the promised seed. But Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, had 12 sons or tribes. So which of these sons would sire the promised seed who would become the Savior? And again, God narrowed down the choice to one of those 12 tribes. He chose Judah as the royal lineage. Father Israel said of Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people." The scepter was a symbol of sovereignty, and Shiloh was a nickname for the Messiah. Both were seated in the lineage of Judah. But the tribe of Judah had many families. That's why Isaiah 11 verse 1 predicted, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, or literally, he shall be the anointed one. Messiah will rise from Jesse's family, a branch or stem from Jesse's root on Abraham's family tree. Oh, but Jesse had eight sons. His youngest wasn't even present when Samuel came to select a new king for Israel. They had to fetch the kid out of the fields. But a humble sheep herder was the man that God chose to shepherd his people Israel. This was the man who became a great king. Jesse's stem was a boy named David, his youngest son. It was from his loins, his own body, that a forever king would rise to rule God's forever kingdom. You know, like a package, you pay extra to have tracked. You can see the parcel flowing through the supply chain. Well, likewise, God's promise for a Savior was tracked from its initiation with Eve all the way to its culmination with Jesus. From Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Jesse to David, finally to Jesus. God didn't want us to miss the Messiah. He tracked the package. God had sent a special gift, a seed, His Son, to the world to redeem us from sin and to reign over us in love. God went out of His way to point Him out to us. Today, we don't have to canvas the globe to find Messiah. God's GPS tracking locates the land where He'll reign, Israel. 
nor do we have to comb through the genealogies of humanity. For God has earmarked the family of Abraham and the sons of David. He even traces the lineage through David to a single person. The tracking of the seed or Messiah runs throughout the whole Old Testament, all 39 books, from Genesis to Malachi, and it all comes together in one verse. The Gospels begin, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here he is. The thread that runs the length of your Bible ends at Jesus from Eve all the way to Joseph and Mary and to their son, Jesus. Jesus is the promise, the promised son of David. He is the promised son of Abraham. God raised up prophet after prophet after prophet so we wouldn't miss him. It gives weight to Revelation 19 verse 10 which tells us, For it is the testimony of Jesus that is the spirit of prophecy. And this is why both Gospels, Matthew and Luke, begin with Jesus' genealogy. Matthew traces Jesus' roots from his stepdad Joseph back to David through Solomon. This proves that Jesus was the legal or the royal heir of the Davidic covenant, a right that passed from the father, whereas Luke tracks the bloodline from David's son Nathan to Jesus' mom Mary to prove that Jesus was also the genetic or the natural-born son of David. He had the royal right and the natural right. Put those two genealogies together and it proves that Jesus possessed both. He possessed all the credentials necessary to sit on David's throne and to rule both Israel and all the earth. It's interesting, the ancient Jews stored their genealogies in the temple at Jerusalem. But when the Roman army burned the temple in 70 AD, their records went up in smoke. God allowed the destruction of those genealogies because they were no longer needed. For Messiah had already come. If Jesus had come after 70 A.D., he could have never proved his Davidic pedigree. See, Jesus is the ultimate heir of the promises that God made to David. Like Solomon, God chastened Jesus, but never rejected him. On the cross, Jesus was judged. He was punished, but not for his own sins. He was punished for your sin and my sin. And today, the son of David, Jesus Christ, is building a temple. It's a spiritual temple. He's building it one person at a time, his church. It's interesting, when Mary birthed Jesus, it had been 580 years since the son of David had sat on the throne in Israel. How exciting it must have been for her when the angel appeared and spoke to her the words in Luke chapter 1, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, And shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This child will fulfill the Davidic covenant. The angel was emphatic. Mary's son Jesus was the eternal king promised to David. 
The Old Testament was full of prophecies that not only traced Messiah's lineage, but also colored between the lines as to what to expect from his life and his work and his ministry. And of all the tree of Abraham, of all the sons of David, Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was the only person who fit the prophecies spoken of that describe the Messiah. Take the prophet Isaiah, for example. Isaiah wrote his prophecy around 700 B.C., about the time that Rome was founded. Seventy years before the Greeks held their first Olympics. Seven centuries before the angel Gabriel would visit a young virgin girl named Mary with the promise of a son. And yet Isaiah stood for God in a terrible time. One of David's successors, Manasseh, was king over God's people, Judah. And he was so evil that he single-handedly provoked the Babylonian spanking of the entire Davidic dynasty. In fact, the king later ordered Isaiah to be sawn in two. They literally cut him in half. You could say Manasseh and the executioner struck a 50-50 business deal. They split the profits. Just took you a while to get that one, didn't it? Just took a little while to get it. Hey, the prophet Isaiah was a seer. He was called a seer. What does that mean? It means he could see into the future. God gave him prophetic gifts. And much of what Isaiah saw was about Jesus. God gave him amazing insights into the future Messiah. Isaiah 7 verse 14 predicts Messiah will be born of a virgin. The same verse reveals his name, Emmanuel. Isaiah 9 predicts that much of Messiah's ministry will occur in and around the northern region of Galilee, that he would reach out to the Gentiles in that area, which of course Jesus did. Isaiah 35 predicts that the Messiah will work miracles. The deaf will hear and the blind will see. Isaiah 50 predicts that he'll be beaten and mocked and spit on. Isaiah 53 paints a picture of his cruel death on the cross, that he'll be executed among thieves, that he'll be buried in a rich man's grave and eventually rise from the dead. Isaiah charts Messiah's life from birth to resurrection. And that was just Isaiah. Of his contemporaries, The prophet Micah foretold in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. Psalm 22 verse 16 tells us that Messiah's hands and feet will be pierced. Psalm 22, in fact, was written 500 years before the Persians invented crucifixion. And yet it depicts Christ on the cross in vivid detail. It forecasts how he was mocked how his bones were not broken, how the men gambled for his robe. Psalm 41 verse 9 predicts that Messiah will be betrayed by a supposed friend. And Zechariah 9 verse 9 predicted Messiah's journey into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Daniel 9 is one of the most amazing messianic prophecies in all the Bible. Daniel was a Jew living in exile in Babylon. And yet God showed him Israel's future. Israel will return to the land of Canaan. Jerusalem will be restored and rebuilt. The son of David, the Messiah, will fulfill God's promises to God's people. And Daniel 
was given a timeline for Israel. Daniel was told for the commandment to rebuild from the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah the Prince, there would be 69 weeks or periods of seven years, that is 483 years. History tells us that the Persian Emperor Artaxerxes gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem on March the 14th, 445 BC. You can chart it on your calendar. Chart out 483 years. That's 173,880 days. And you arrive at the date, April the 6th, 32 AD. The very day of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. In Daniel 9, over 550 years in advance, God pinpoints the exact day Messiah presented himself to the nation Israel. Daniel 9 verse 26 goes on to say that shortly thereafter, Messiah is cut off, but not for himself. What an interesting phrase. To be cut off implies a violent death, an execution, but not for his own crimes, we're told. No, Jesus was put to death for someone else's sin. Obviously, Daniel 9 speaks of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. This chapter is one of the most fascinating in all the Bible. It put Messiah's first coming on the clock. And these are just a few of the over 300 Old Testament prophecies that predict details of Messiah's ministry. Think of the probability of one man accidentally, randomly, fulfilling all 300 prophecies. To have that kind of fulfillment would make the certainty of Messiah's identity crystal clear. There's a classic book by a man named Peter Stoner. He was the former head of the math and astronomy department of Pasadena City College. The book is entitled Science Speaks. And in it, Stoner predicts the probabilities or calculates the probabilities of a single man fulfilling just eight of these 300 Old Testament prophecies that concern the Messiah. And the probability of just eight being fulfilled is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a number with one in front of 17 zeros. That's a hundred quadrillion. Now keep in mind the probability of you or I dying in a fire is about 1 in 40,000. That's a 4 followed by four zeros. The odds of getting struck by a baseball at an Atlanta Braves game is about 1 in 300,000. That's a 3 trailed by five zeros. And the possibility of you or I getting hit by a lightning bolt is 1 in 2 million. That's a two followed by six zeros. Yet the probability of Jesus accidentally fulfilling just eight of these 300 Old Testament prophecies is one in a number ending with 17 zeros. Your chances of being struck by lightning is 50 billion times greater than Jesus accidentally fulfilling these eight prophecies. That is out of a total of 292 other prophecies. Let me provide you a bit more perspective. Think of a, bit, a bed, a vast bed of silver dollars, two feet deep, covering the entire state of Texas. 
paint one of those silver dollars red, then mix it up with all the other coins. And the odds of you drawing the one red coin are the same odds of Jesus fulfilling by chance just eight of those 300 Old Testament prophecies. Here's my point. The only explanation for the Bible's fulfilled prophecies is that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised Son of David. Yet if the evidence was so overwhelming, why did the Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah? And the answer is, they overlooked certain prophetic details. You see, like us sometimes, they latched on to what they wanted to believe, and they ignored the rest. For example, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, was a favorite Messianic passage among the Jews. Daniel writes this, I was watching, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, in his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. See, the Jews of Jesus' day, they liked the idea of Messiah flying in on the clouds, coming in power and glory. But when Jesus stooped to wash his disciples' feet, they balked. The Jews thought Messiah should be served, not be a servant. A humble Messiah didn't fit in with their expectations. They hadn't considered all the Messianic prophecies. Prophecies like Isaiah 42. My servant, I have put my spirit upon him. He will not cry out nor raise his voice. A bruised reed he will not break. See, the Jews hoped Messiah would break some legs and raise his voice and throw his weight around. The Jews saw the Messiah as a political leader. They read passages like Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. See, the Jews saw Messiah as a political powerhouse. The one ruler will shoulder the government. He'll usher in a new age for Israel. They didn't realize that Messiah's first priority would be the condition of their own soul. See, it's interesting, the Jewish rabbis in the first century, they had a difficult time with the thought of one Messiah doing all that the Hebrew prophets had foretold that he would do. Some rabbis actually thought that there were two Messiahs. Messiah ben Joseph, or the son of Joseph. You remember Joseph, how he served the people there in Egypt. They thought this Messiah would be a servant of the people, whereas Messiah ben David was the mighty ruler who would defeat Israel's enemies. Other rabbis taught that the Messianic prophecies were conditional on Jewish reaction, that if the Hebrews were faithful to God, Messiah would come riding in on the clouds. If they weren't, he would mock them and come on the back of a donkey. 
They didn't see how there was room for both scenarios to be fulfilled simultaneously. Well, the prophet Zedekiah, I'm sorry, Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah predicted that Messiah would come riding on a donkey. This was fulfilled on Palm Sunday when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. But Daniel chapter 7 foresaw the Messiah riding in on the clouds. And Jesus will fulfill that promise too. You, you remember at his trial before Caiaphas, Jesus was ordered, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And that's when Jesus replied, It is as you said, Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus not only fulfilled Zechariah and came riding on a donkey, but later, that is hereafter, he fulfilled Daniel's vision of him riding in on the clouds. You see, Messiah comes to earth twice. The first time as a suffering servant to bring us salvation. But at the end of the age, he comes again as a conquering king. Jesus came the first time to save his enemies. He returns to crush his enemies. See, Messiah made dual visits to the earth, but he also had a dual nature. And again, this is what the rabbis missed. The Old Testament portrayed Messiah as the Son of Man and as the Son of God. As the Son of David, he was the Son of Man, but he was also the Son of God. He was the God-Man, as we call him today. This is what Jesus brought up after the Jews approached him in the temple and they tried to trap him. Remember, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? What a great question. Messiah was the son of David. But at the same time, David called the Messiah his Lord or Master. How then was the Christ both his son and his boss? The king only had one master, and that was God. So is David calling the Messiah God? That's the only conclusion. Indeed, he was. Jesus was pointing out to the Jews that Messiah was both human and divine. He was the son of David, and he was the son of God. Why did the Jews crucify their Messiah? Well, for sure, they never recognized his dual nature and his dual visits. Let me read to you one more Messianic prophecy tonight. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, the Lord speaks, I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper. And execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And I love that name for our Messiah, our Savior Jesus. It breathes hope and forgiveness into our lives. The Mosaic Covenant set the bar for righteousness out of our reach. 
No matter how much Israel tried to act righteous, the sin in their heart sabotaged their efforts. Spanking after spanking made it obvious that no one was good enough or right enough before God to be accepted. It was obvious that God's people needed a Savior. And that is exactly what the Davidic covenant promised us. On our own, we pull up terribly short of God's standard. But put your faith in Jesus and He shares His righteousness with you. As it was said of Abraham, He believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. The world we occupy is wrong side up in every way. But Jesus is into rightness. And how he turns us right side up is our subject next week when we dwell, delve into the new covenant. Father, thank you for your word to us this evening.